In the previous episode... So the liver is, it's this little three to four pound organ. It's not too little, but it's amazing. It's the only organ in our body that can regenerate itself, but it won't regenerate on its own. It needs some help from us, mm -hmm. from the foods that we eat or we don't eat. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. On today's episode, we're going to explore functional foods for microbiome balance. If you're a health practitioner who really wants to help people to get well, not to just cover up symptoms, not to just apply protocols, whether nutritional or pharmaceutical, we are doing a live event that's just right for you. It's called Functional Nutrigenomics in Clinical Practice. And it's all about how you can learn the genetic testing you can do with people to help you to personalize their diet and lifestyle plans. And when you put that together with your typical really great functional history and lab testing, you're gonna have all you need. So join us for an online virtual event that you can attend from anywhere. It's June 2nd to 4th, 2023. And you can get there by going to nesliveconference.com. That's nesliveconference.com. And we'll also put the link on the show notes page. We need to feed ourselves for optimal health. It's an important thing that we need to teach our clients how to eat for balanced hormones and balanced body systems to support mitochondria and feed their brains. But we also need to teach them how to feed the critters living in their gut. And it's more than just having them choose a probiotic from the refrigerated section of the health food store. It's so much more, and that's what we'll be exploring today with our guest, Steph Jackson. We'll be discussing things like how to make sure your clients know how to get the variety of carbohydrates needed for a healthy microbiome, the phytonutrients necessary for butyrate production, and how to use fermentation to change everyday foods for a variety of gut healing benefits. A healthy gut requires the right nourishment to function optimally and support a diverse population of microorganisms. Microbiome imbalances lead to a lot of the issues our clients faced. And the symptoms are often far-reaching, not just in the gut. Steph is one of our certified nutritional endocrinology practitioners. She's an expert in gut health and fermented foods and is oftenly lovingly called the gut whisperer by members of our community. She's a sought-after coach in our Energy Recharge Inner Circle and is the founder of a community called the Friendly Flora Collective. Steph is changing the way we think about holistic digestive health. She's done water fasts, juice fasts, pumpkin fasts. She's quit jobs, left partners, and relocated, all for her health. 
She's read everything from spiritual nutrition to Chinese medicine formulations to advanced phytotherapy to the textbook of clinical and functional medicine. She studied herbalism, aromatherapy, color therapy, functional nutrition, and nutritional endocrinology. She got sick and then she got better by harnessing the power of her body to heal itself with the help of the microbiome. She even created her own yogurt that sold in Canada so that she could share the tremendous healing potential of probiotic-rich living foods. After applying everything she learned through designing her own yogurt, her life completely changed. She believes that it's through working with all of our bacteria that will achieve dynamic, lasting health and that wellness can manifest if we get out of the war with ourselves and our internal and external environment. According to Steph, unless you address the diversity of the microbiome, lasting and robust health will remain elusive. Welcome, Steph. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Rita Marie. I'm really excited for today, too. Yes. So we have some topics to discuss, don't we? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So Billions, we're, many billions, billions. of them. Billions. <laughs> this is actually the first in a two-part series, because with all the things that we wanted to share with you about the microbiome and balancing it using food, we realized we couldn't fit it in. So we're going to split this in two and leave you hanging at the end to come back for more. So I really would love to start by talking about some of the ways that the foods we eat affect the microbiome. Okay, thank you. I think that's an awesome place to start just so that uh, before we start talking about how we can use food to make change, um, I want to underscore why it's so important and what can go wrong, you know? Yep. Let's just talk about maybe resistant starch first. So we all know resistant starch is good. Uh, it's good for your clients to improve their short chain fatty acid production. If, if we're not consuming or if your clients are not able to consume enough resistant starch, um, they might have reduced bifidobacteria and they might have less butyrate specifically, which is so important for our gut lining integrity, for our metabolic balance, for our sleep schedule. Um, butyrate does a lot uh, in the body. And specifically, there are some bacteria that get decreased when we are not able to consume enough resistant starch. Um, so there's the Fecalibacterium prosnitsi, the Clostridium leptum, and the Roseburia. If you're doing gut tests on your client, you may have seen the Roseburia come up on, on some of them. And, and you know that resistant starch is one of the types of fiber, right? There's a whole spectrum of, of different types of carbohydrates that, that your clients would optimally be able to tolerate on a healthy diet. Um, and if there's just too little fiber in general, there's going to be a decrease in the bifidobacterium, which are kind of the grandmother bacteria that take care of the, the large intestine colony, should be up to, well, even more, but 10% of our bacteria in a healthy individual would be the bifidobacterium, and only 2% would be the lacto. Um, which is usually quite flipped around, um, but with just not enough fiber in general. That's a huge difference. And, you know, when we buy yeah. probiotics at the health food store, even if you're buying the ones in the refrigerated section or good names, to have that difference, because they're definitely not that much bifido compared to, as you said, 10%. 10% bifido and between 1% and 2% of lactobacillus in our whole gut colony. Okay. So we really need to be focusing on those bifido. Yes. And so are you saying that those bifido grow better when there's more of this fiber? Yes. They they need it to 
survive. So to thrive, they need the fiber, the resistant starch, and they need colorful plant foods. They they need those phytonutrients. But to just be there at all, they really need a spectrum of fiber being consumed. Interesting. So it's not enough to just take a probiotic. It's not enough to go get some psyllium or Metamucil for fiber, which a lot of them are doing. We need to eat the good, the rainbow, basically. Exactly. And lots of the good fibers from there. Exactly. Yeah, because you'll probably find like your clients are so educated now. They're up on their SNPs. They know they've Mm -hmm. got a food to SNP and then they're going and buying bifidobacteria. But without feeding the bifidobacteria the right foods, it's going to be almost impossible to get enough in there. They're not going to thrive. Wow. Yeah. That's good to know. Because a lot of people, you know, have been trained to the health in the bottle concept, right? If you have something wrong, you go to the doctor, you get a pill, you get a a liquid, whatever, you take it. And so they take that mentality and move it over into more of the functional health spectrum and the nutrition spectrum. And it's like, well, just, okay, probiotics, I need more of that. Give me it in a bottle. I need more fiber. What about Metamucil? Oh, Metamucil is not so good because it has other garbage in it. What about, you know, just taking some other kind of fiber? So it's really a lot more than just taking probiotics and fiber, it's a matter of eating the right foods to encourage this. Yeah, exactly. And you know, when I'm saying fiber, I'm just meaning any carbohydrates that are long enough that they're not broken down in our small intestine. <laughs> so it's it's a range. So things like lettuce, right? Things like green leafy vegetables, the red bell pepper, all of those foods, that's what you're talking about with fiber. You're not talking about just you have to eat, you know, wheat and whatever people typically think of as high fiber foods as grains and and um, you know, psyllium and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um and actually, so when when you comb over some studies, you might come across several studies that show that we can increase our bifidobacterium by eating more fiber. But what they have not been able to find is that eating more fiber produces more butyrate specifically in the gut. And I believe that this is because we really need, um, because separate studies have shown that we need those colorful plant chemicals to actually produce the, the butyrate. So those blue foods, the orange foods, we need that to actually feed those that whole colony that's that's grandmothered by the bifido um and so we need both of those things and where do you get those things um vegetables (laughs) the favorite food group (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and so you know even if even if for some reason you can't do the orange or the blue vegetables right now um know that the chlorophyll in the green vegetables is covering up just like how leaves change in the fall you know, they changed uh, the chlorophyll's gone and it reveals those other colors of the, the plant nutrients that are in there. Mm. Um, same with our vegetables, right? So when you're consuming, say, let's go back to bok choy again, um, there are there are other colors that are kind of covered up by green. If you're getting green, you're almost getting most of the rainbow, if that makes any sense. Not to say that the blue foods are not amazingly healthful foods. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing that because people go, oh, I can't tolerate this. I have a I have a nightshade sensitivity, so I can't eat tomatoes and bell peppers and eggplant. I can't eat those things. And so what can I do that's different? And you're saying that if you have intolerances to some of those other foods, you can eat enough greens to make that up. 
Right. So if, if it's like, well, if they're saying, oh, I can't eat vegetables because I can't eat, you know, these vegetables, then just say, okay, we'll eat all the vegetables except for those vegetables um, Got it. and just try to, to make some progress with what they can eat. Got it. If we're going to do another, um, like a follow-up to this, we can hopefully talk about how to help your clients tolerate some more, uh, more of a spectrum of the vegetables that they haven't been able to in the past through fermentation and other um, other methods of practice. I think it's a great idea because there's just way too much to cover in one episode and those are important things that we see all the time. What about oxalates and what about lectins and what about all these other food things that there are a lot of well-meaning practitioners out there scaring people about, quite frankly, and creating a food phobia. And then people get down to, which you did get down to at one point, and you can share that a little bit, but one food that you can tolerate until you heal the gut. Yeah, exactly. And I guess I, I call it wrong focus, right? We're just focusing on the things from the outside world that we can't tolerate rather than focusing on our metabolism of those things and how are we're able to work with our own biochemistry and our own gut lining or whatever it is that's relevant, you know, to be able to tolerate and communicate with more of the world around us. Yeah, I totally agree with you there because I say, I say that all the time. I say, if you're not tolerating a good food. I don't mean if you're not tolerating Cheerios and M&M's. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. your body doesn't tolerate the good stuff, it's not the food's fault. It's the body's fault. If their body doesn't tolerate M&M's, it's the food's fault. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about the spectrum of colors of M&M's. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's not what we mean by rainbow. That's Man. not it at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So there's a couple of things, right? Keep going on how we affect the microbiome. If they have any other yeah. ideas, because I have some questions, if not. Yeah. I realized that I kind of, I forgot to mention some. So if you are looking at gut tests for your clients, right? Um, if they have decreased acromancia or decreased colon cella, um, and decreased bifido or decreased short chain fatty acids, it it would be great and so leveraged for them to be able to tolerate more plant foods or to have some delicious, wonderful recipes, some food support um, from us so that it's not just telling them what not to consume, which arguably is very important, right. but also supporting them to be able to, to consume more things. Because if those bacteria are low, it's a good bet that they're not getting enough of a spectrum yeah, of fiber. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. And those are the ones that are that are shown to help help your clients improve their insulin sensitivity, lose weight, lower the lousy cholesterol. <laughs> um, <laughs> those those things. So those are beneficial bacteria to have in abundance. Great. That's great. So I want to ask you about um, a couple of things about the acidity and alkalinity of the digestive tract. The acidity of the so the environment is different from one part to the next. And so we want an acidic stomach, but we want an alkaline uh, pH in the, the small intestine, right? So stomach acidic, it has to get alkalized. There's things in process we all know about that help to do that. But what happens if that gets reversed? What happens if that's not really what's going on. Right. So there's such a complex signaling that, that goes on when we eat food, right from the moment when we put something in our mouth, right? There's chemical signaling and whatever other types of signaling as well that occur. And part of this is there are feedback loops that happen, mm -hmm. right? So let's assume, let's go with stomach acid. Um, if there is not enough stomach acid, then like the bolus of food when it's released into the small intestine isn't going to be acidic enough to trigger enough bile to be released from the liver. 
And the bile from the liver being very alkaline helps to alkalinize the small intestine, helps to make things move through at a good rate, um, and just really makes the environment in there appropriate. So we want to have a really alkaline and largely empty, most of the time, small intestine. You want to have an acidic stomach when it's appropriate um, so that all of the signaling can take place. And this then signals the pancreatic enzymes, the liver enzymes, the brush border enzymes in our small intestine, all these things that are helping us to tolerate foods um, and helping us to have a robust mucosa and immune response in there to help protect us too. Um, so the, the environments in there are very important. And if the if the small intestine environment through this either through the signaling not working correctly, through the stomach not being acidic enough, through maybe not having enough bile for whatever other reason, right? Because things can be compounding. Um, then it's supposed to be an aerobic environment, so an oxygenated environment, like water, right? But what it can become is an anaerobic environment where the bacteria that are supposed to be in our large intestine will then move into the small intestine. And it becomes anaerobic and it's an unhealthy environment. We won't be able to absorb our nutrients as well. The mucosa will begin to degrade. Um, our immunity gets affected. This, the, we get different signals um, to upregulate and downregulate things when, when bacteria are where they're not supposed to be, right? That just makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so the environments can get, can get altered and that can just kind of beget different bacterial colonies growing where they don't belong. So let me let me summarize this. It sounds like, okay, the pH is super important. Yeah. We need an acidic stomach, not just for digesting protein and breaking down minerals like we think about, but also for triggering the release of bile, which then supports us in alkalizing that bolus. Mm -hmm. And also with fat, of course, fat emulsion yep. and all. And and then it's loaded with garbage that the liver just put in it to take out. So there's a lot that's to be said there, right? So right. when the small intestine is too acidic, what are some of those things? You said, you mentioned one, you said that some of those uh, in the bacteria that should be growing in the large intestine go, hey, I'll grow here because it's nice and acidic. It works, right? What mm -hmm. else happens there? that when when we have an acidic small intestine yeah so our motility gets decreased in two ways um the the bile being so alkaline is is a motility agent for the small intestine and what can happen when when it's too acidic in there is that just isn't working as well and if those bacteria are sort of growing in the wrong place, um, it can actually damage our migrating motor complex itself. So our smooth muscle contractions, um, our nerves in there. Um, and so then that will also slow the motility in another way. And hey, that makes it even a better home for those bacteria. Oh. Coincidence? <laughs> I think they like it like that. Um, and it also helps us to not absorb our nutrients as well. Yeah. Uh, because we, we need the correct environment to be able to pull all of those nutrients um, across the gut lining. So it's a lot. And SIBO, anybody? <laughs> it sounds like the perfect, that's basically what's making up SIBO. So, yeah. so you can actually have, this is what I'm getting from what we're talking about here. When stomach acid is low, that can actually facilitate the growth of these organisms where they shouldn't be and then the, the the manifestations of people as SIBO. Everybody's heard of SIBO back in, you know, the day. Nobody ever heard of it. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now it's like 
the household word, but it's happening partially as a result of this low stomach acid. Yeah, there's a lot of other factors, but that low stomach acid creating us an acidic environment in the small intestine because we're not getting enough bile, get it? Not digesting fats, ha. And then these guys grow out of control. And then when you eat them, tell us why, or when you eat food, why one of the first symptoms that people get with this out of balance microbiome in the small intestine is bloating. Mm -hmm. So well, basically, one of the only things that can cause bloating in our bodies, other than just our, our gallt, like our, our lymphatic tissue um, swelling, is bacteria producing gas or whatever it is that they produce their byproducts from eating our food for us, right? And so um, if we are not able to digest something well, there will be a colony of bacteria that grow to digest it for us. And that's just what happens. We're basically feeding them. So our brush border enzymes, which I think I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the signaling, are so important for those mid-chain carbohydrates. And we all produce different amounts of different types of the brush border enzymes, but they are signaled by our pancreatic enzymes, our liver enzymes, and our stomach acid, and our digestive hormones as well. And so when that's all working really well, we're going to be digesting those FODMAPs, those middle chain carbs, as well as we personally can. And that's, you know, all that I would want for myself or for anybody, right, is to be the best that I can be. Um, and we're all going to be different. So some of us might be able to eat a raw onion. Some of us might be good at something else, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, we're good at other things. And that's the raw fine. onion digesting contest. Who's best? <laughs> <laughs> We've all got different skills. And, and like, that's fine, right? So if, if, there, if you find that you're eating something that, that gives you those symptoms, you've either eaten too much of it or it's the food that you can't tolerate right now. And you know that those symptoms are from bacteria eating it for you. That's the only thing those symptoms are from. Right. So just to clarify, you know, we hear a lot about people going on SIBO diets and, you know, low FODMAP diets and controlling the carbohydrates. This is the science behind why that's so important. And we need to, instead of going in like the medical profession typically does is, oh, we have a bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. Instead of thinking about why is that happening, how do we make them move on down if they belong in the large intestine? If they are true pathogens, we want to get rid of them. But the point is, it doesn't seem like that's the only approach, right? And we see it all the time. I don't know about you, but in my practice, what I see all the time is people who've been treated for SIBO and they've taken the antibiotics and they're not better. Yeah. And couple of the reasons is this migrating motor complex hasn't been addressed and we're not looking at the stomach acid yeah. and looking at how to improve the stomach acid production. Exactly. In short, we're not looking at the context. It's like knowing that your foot hurts, but not knowing that there's an elephant standing on it. It's like, oh, I diagnosed the problem is that your foot is inflamed. <laughs> it's like, well, we got to take the elephant off this person's foot so that their foot can get better. Right. You know? <laughs> That's a great analogy. I love it. Any such analogy like this, right? Um, your tire's flat, but like you're just driving over nails all day long. So it, the actual context needs to be addressed. And that's kind of why I want to move past the whole SIBO thing. Because really with SIBO, you're going to take a test or your client's going to take a test. It's going to measure the amount out of balance that something is. 
And that's the information that you get. You're not going to get information about which bacteria are likely to be involved, which lifestyle factors are contributing to this, what their migrating motor complex is even doing. Right. All of this is only through experiential, through you talking to them and getting their feedback about their own body. And then you can address it with with these things that we're talking about yes. here. And so all of these are, are, are connected is what I want to say. I don't generally do those tests, so usually a breath test, and what they're measuring is hydrogen or, or methane gas that's produced by these bugs. And so if you mm -hmm. eat something and it feeds these guys a whole bunch of, of food and then they spit out this gas, guess who gets bloated? <laughs> Not them, you, right? And so that's the thing we have to be looking at with people. And when I teach how, you know, you re remember from the nutritional endocrinology training, when I teach how to get the digestion balanced, we start at the top. Mm -hmm. We don't start with where the symptoms are presenting. We start at the top and we, we address all the imbalances from top down, including head, mm -hmm. because a lot of times the digestive problems are coming from somebody eating under stress, totally. which has an abundance of cortisol being produced, which shuts this down. It shuts down the production of bile. It shuts down the valves between the sections of the, the uh, digestive tract. So we start there. Yeah, it shuts down the signaling and everything. Exactly. Exactly. And chewing, right? You mentioned chewing. So what else? What, what else do we do to improve the stomach acid, you know? Che chewing, eating. Okay, well, I'm going to go for something very simple. Yes. We use over a liter of water every day in producing stomach acid. Whoa. I didn't know that. You know, how many of our clients are like taking zinc supplements and, you know, have some food rituals that they do. They're just not drinking enough water yes. the rest of the day to have that water available to make stomach acid. I love it because that's one of the basics when we're teaching people is like, we always want to find these these unique nerdy solutions so that we can be the hero. But that simple thing, like you got to drink more water. And you know, it's interesting you say that because I've worked with folks who have been in a year long program with us and they're like, okay, we're reviewing it about six to eight months in. And like this, this problem doesn't seem to be going away. So then I go back to the basics. I say, okay, how much water are you drinking? And then they get that sheepish look on their face. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, I'm, I'm, up to, I'm up to three glasses. Like, how much do you weigh? Like 200 pounds? Ain't going to cut it, right? <laughs> Ain't going to cut it. You can't, you, can't do, you can't do anything with three glasses of water if you weigh 200 pounds. Now, if you're an 80-pound weakling, you know, not weakling, but you know what I mean, a little bitty thing, a kid, a, you know, before... Um, Men, not menopause, but uh, what's the name of it? Puberty. <laughs> I've tried to forget that word, having had two boys go yeah, through right. it. Right? But even uh, kids uh, aren't uh, drinking uh, enough water, really. But even kids are not. They're not. Yeah. They're not drinking enough water. Yeah. So I love that you... Yeah, and then we're going like, what's the mystery? What are my snips? Like, right. which kind of like, there's a zinc with seven different types of zinc that people are like, well, this one will be better. It'll fix the thing. Like, well, let's go back to water. Let's go back to water. Let's rewind here. Yeah, and also the other yeah. basic, and I'm a big fan. Between meals. Yes, in between meals, right? But you've got to eat in a nice, relaxed environment. Yeah. I once had to do a talk at the last minute because somebody canceled called the yoga of eating. And I'm like, 
Okay, what am I going to say here? And I made something up, which was totally appropriate because it really makes sense. You want to get your body in that same relaxed state that you get with yoga before you eat your food. So everything gets to work. So when you're working with your clients, please, I mean, all the stuff Steph's going to share about the particular organisms and all this stuff is great stuff. And you got to make sure they're doing the basics first. Um, So when those environments are are out of balance. Uh, if you are looking at any of your clients' gut tests, I think I actually want to mention a couple other other bacteria. Sure. Um, so you might see increased valinella, which um, so it's B E I L L O nella. Um, those have been found in atherosclerotic plaques. They've been found in uh, tooth decay and gum disease. They've been found in the oral microbiome of people who have um, heart disease or have had a cardiac event. Um, and so that's the valinella, and they can be commonly increased when there's this this imbalance going on in the gut. And you know, there's a whole discussion like, does it start in the mouth? Does it start? I don't know. I think it starts in the gut, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of those environments need to be kind of looked at. And then you can see an increased fusobacterium. And I'm mentioning these because they're on the gut tests. You might be reading these gut tests and then this might be helpful. Um, and so those are associated with Crohn's, colon cancer. Um, and we don't know, you know, if it's a causal association. We just know that those tend to be higher in people with like the IBD or colon cancer. Mm-hmm. And so they're thriving in some kind of an unhealthy environment. We know that. And so if we just go in and we take a breath test and we give them antibiotics or oregano, arguably, I'm not sure if that's even better, right? It's still kind of an allopathic approach. We're not addressing the environment and we're not doing a service, a deep service to our clients, helping them to change their lives at a deep level. It's heavy duty, right? It's like going back to the beginning. It's not just a matter of taking more probiotic, which probiotic should I take? How many strains are in the probiotic? Mm -hmm. How many, you know, units are there? It's a matter of of having the right environment and getting all of this cleaned up. And it's not just a matter of, oh, these things cause these symptoms. Who would people don't like? Embarrassing gas and bloating and the pants don't fit at the end of the day. <laughs> but bottom line is heart disease is more is even more insidious and dangerous. So we need to look at the whole picture. Yeah. And we need to look at the microbiome balance, not just as a nice thing to do, but an imperative thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And it might be because food is something that we encounter multiple times a day, every day for our lives, except for those short periods where we may be fasting, right? Um, It may be something that needs to sort of continually be monitored and addressed and taken care of like we are stewards of, of that environment. Yeah. Ongoing. Yeah. So a couple of things. So there's other, we talked about the motility, right? The migrating motor complex. And we talked about bile being so important for that. Mm-hmm. And, um, alkalizing and drinking water between mm-hmm. meals. What about serotonin? Does serotonin have an effect mm-hmm. on the migrating motor complex? Exactly. Yeah. So if, let's just kind of go into the migrating motor complex for a second here. So let's say that you've determined that that's something that you want to work on or that your client is going to be working on. And we talked about those environments. So first step, make sure that the upper GI is balanced, including chewing everything, right? (laughs) Chewing, taking time, having enough stomach acid, having good signaling, um, being hungry 
for a few minutes before eating is really important for that as well. Um, and then the next step would be to make sure that you're okay. Beginning- a few minutes or longer than a few minutes. Thirty minutes, because you know there's thirty minutes is more yep. than a few. I just <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. So thirty minutes. And why is that important? Why is being hungry for thirty minutes before you actually put awesome? Food well, I want to cycle back. Important because most people are. Yeah, I want to cycle yeah, back. Go ahead. I was just going to say most people are. You get hungry and you want to eat and you eat. Yeah. So cycle back, yes. Yeah, I want to cycle back to that later um, because I want to talk about um, okay about about the mucosa and how to support that through ghrelin. Um, but yeah, just for this for the migrating motor complex, yes, do be hungry for thirty minutes before you eat. Okay. Um, okay. And then make sure to remove anything that's slowing motility. So that's where the bacteria talk that we were having before. That's where that comes in, sort of assessing whether or not that's an issue in the environments mm. or maybe being altered and that's affecting motility that needs to be dealt with. But then also some of the things that can affect small intestine motility, which is separate from large intestine motility, right? Like your clients might have regular bowel movements, but they might have slow small intestine motility or fast. We don't, it's separate. Um, so serotonin is really important in having good motility in the small intestine. Um, and that's one of the things maybe you've heard about taking ginger for the migrating motor complex. That's how ginger works, is it increases the serotonin in the small intestine, thereby increasing the motility. Nice. Um, so like two grams of ginger extract. I haven't seen really anybody have great results with any less than that um, in the evening. Okay, so what does that come out to be for, like if, if I'm a whole food person and I just want to use whole pieces of ginger, you know, people are putting ginger in smoothies and soups and various things. How big a piece and does it raw or cooked make a difference? Um, so having a juicer or being able to sort of blend it and strain it here is really helpful because for me, that would be throughout in between meals during the day, fitting in two one ounce shots of ginger juice. Okay. Well, that's not too bad. Yeah. It's not too bad. It's more than just having some nice ginger tea. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. But I've used ginger juice a lot and the, the side the other side effect of ginger juice is it reduces inflammation and I've had people do it as, as an analgesic mm -hmm. in between meals. Yeah, ginger is such a wonderful food um, that if if your clients can tolerate it, the benefits go beyond yes. having great migrating motor complex. Yeah. 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 Um, and then there's saffron and St. John's wort, but those would have to be probably extracts. And saffron is a little bit expensive, but you can get it as a supplement, yeah. but then we're not going whole foods. Um, but you can, if you are able to incorporate that into meals, I believe even a small amount of something is helpful, right? It doesn't have to be the amount mm. that's been shown in a double blind study to do something. Um, we can still do small amounts of helpful things. Um, and same with St. John's Wort. So tincture being... If you can maybe make a tincture. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Or you have clients to do that. Cool. Yeah. Wow. We've covered a lot in this first part. Is there anything else you want to cover before we move to the part two, which we will record and post another time, <laughs> um, where we're going to really talk about... Um, some of those very specific organisms and how they affect the gut and how, what do you do when people have to restrict certain food groups because they just don't tolerate it? Yeah. Um, okay. So I think the not being able to tolerate things and masterminding how your clients can tolerate more vegetables, let's do that whole thing next time. Yes. Um, cause that's really helpful hands-on stuff. Um, 
and maybe we can just yes. you know, do all of that. I think I do want to go back quickly to the how we were talking about ghrelin. Yes. Um, yeah, I want to just close that that before we go. Okay. Um, so we 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 barely talked about um, intestinal mucosa and mucosal immunity, which is another really important part of having the right bacteria in the right place, is having the right immunity in the intestinal mucosa, right? It's our shield. It protects our gut lining as well. Um, and so one thing that can happen when things are out of balance there is it can get sort of um, eaten away a little bit um, and it can become an unhealthy mucosa. And I'm not even really talking about biofilm. That's a separate thing, right? We just need to have a nice, robust mucosa. And one thing that can help us to rebuild that is having good ghrelin. So being hungry for half an hour before eating actually really encourages the production of mucosa in the small intestine. A lot of things that people can take like slippery elm or aloe and those kinds of demulcents, um, folks with SIBO or with any kind of imbalance, they might not be able to tolerate that. And so one way to still uh, encourage the mucosa without being able to take those kind of protective demulcents is to have that ghrelin happen. Um, and so there are a couple of herbs that you might be able to incorporate into foods for your clients, depending on their situation, right? So we've got ginseng, we've got echinacea, which I know is endangered. So if you can find a, a good source for that, that would be, that's a good option. Um, those actually work by increasing ghrelin, which increases growth hormone in the gut, which helps to increase our mucosa. And reishi extract has actually been shown to help increase mucosal immunity. And we need that so that we can discourage the bacteria that we don't want to have living in different places. Right. Yeah. And that would be just a, an extract or um, the whole mushroom, you know, stuck in a pot for three days because that's how long it takes to extract from it. Yeah, or exactly. Do, so um, if you have, you know, if you have like a wood stove and you can do like a reishi tea, <laughs> just <laughs> stick it in there. Um but yeah, or you can make your own tincture or you can get like a, a powdered extract. I like to use the four sigmatic ones because they test for the mycotoxins, which is important to me. Mm. Um, but then you can, you know, help your clients to work with that and add, make an elixir and add some things to it and eat it as a food um, on the regular. On a regular basis. As we can, you can see by what we've been talking about, there's a lot more to it than just addressing the symptoms as they come up. Like what, should I take fennel tea for the gas? Well, fennel tea will give you a temporary relief from the gas, but it's not going to actually fix the underlying causes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good to have those tools. Okay. We need well, those this... tools, but we also need to look deeper for yeah. people. Yes, yes, yes. Because otherwise they're just, they're coming back three years later after having been to, you know, several naturopaths and several functional medicine docs, and they still have the same symptoms. And they're still eating the same way they were when they started this. They haven't really made those those deep adjustments. And I think that's super important. And I know you and I have a very similar approach when it comes to that, that we really really believe in the power of food mm -hmm. to change physiology. Yeah, deeply, it really does change physiology, which is why people need to be working <laughs> with an actual practitioner that knows them because yeah. they can make shifts really quickly yeah. in a matter of weeks with this microbiome stuff, which can change their metabolism. You know? Yes, absolutely. So we have covered a lot of ground and this has been packed with powerful takeaways. So if you could give our listeners just one or two key actions to take based on this talk, what would they yeah, be? Yeah. So 
I'm assuming that you have those tools, like we were talking about the fennel tea, and those are really important for your clients to be able to have efficacy and know that they have something they can do when they have a problem. And deeper than that, see if you can help them to understand the context of what's going on in their body so that they would be willing and able to do some of these things that help more in the long term like the reishi, like the ginger shots, like those types of things that they they might not right away notice a change, but are working with our gut microflora. And when the biology catches up, it can be really powerful. Um, so yeah, those, those things that we were talking about today, see if you can uh, outline the context for your clients and help them to take those important steps forward, not just using food allopathically. I love it. So we need to have our symptom relief. And we need to have these long-term strategies and we need to educate them as to the best actions to take based on their own physiology, but also encouraging them to, that we want to really change the underlying cause and not just keep taking fennel tea to get rid of their gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's the best way that people can reach you? I know that you have some uh, kind of a free gift and uh, and we I would also love to hear a little bit about your membership site, the, the Friendly Flora Collective. Um, yeah, okay. So we'll start with that. I am, we're at the friendlyfloracollective.com. It's just friendlyfloracollective.com. And we're just, we're a group of <laughs> nerdy people that love to get down in the kitchen. And so we, we, we work on, I post recipes every month. Uh, we make the recipes, people make alterations. Uh, we talk about customizing them for different outcomes, reducing oxalates or whatever it is that the person wants to do. Uh, we have a group call every month where we share uh, our creations and we share questions about the things like what we were talking about today. Um, we get pretty in depth, which is nice. I love that. And yeah, I'm so proud of this community that, that we've created together Beautiful. of like-minded people because we can really brainstorm and collaborate. And so that's the friendly flora. And then yeah. we're doing a, it's called the microbiome mission. It's a, a week-long challenge. We're going to work on feeding our bacteria and so the stuff that we were talking about today actually really does fit in there. Mm. So more than just taking the right bacteria, but making sure that they're well fed. And so that's at microbiomemission.com. Microbiomemission.com. That's awesome. Thank you. And then I have a bunch of free recipes at plantpoweredprobiotics.com as well. Okay. So we're going to put all of these links in the show notes. So no worries if you didn't catch that. Um, I just so appreciate you, Steph, for joining and sharing from your nerdy wisdom <laughs> about how the gut works and all the those critters. I, I learned some things and I know our listeners have learned a lot from this. So um, thank you to everybody who's here listening for nerding out with us on the bacteria. We'll be back for part two. And that's going to talk about the, you know, how the gut microbiome and the gut function is impacted by restricting certain food groups. And how, how do you get around that? How do you help people to restore that gut function so they don't have to restrict certain food groups? So I invite all of you to take action, to support your clients, to achieve healthy microbiome and gut function using food. The more you master the art of using functional food principles to balance hormones and body functions, the greater your success with empowering your clients to achieve their health and wellness goals. And that's what we're here for, right? This will lead to a thriving and fulfilling practice because they come back and they send their friends, right? Because you get helping them to get results. Mm -hmm. You feel great at the end of the day because you're changing lives for the better. 
Remember to check the show notes page for Steph's information and to download the functional food guide that I have put together to access a bunch of charts and all the things we've been discussing in this functional food facts segment of reInvent Healthcare. So that's at reinventhealthcare.com slash food. And until next time, shine on. Thank you for listening to the reInvent Healthcare podcast. Join the movement of practitioners that are guiding people to actually get well rather than covering up their symptoms. Connect with us at reinventhealthcare.com to access resources and tools that will empower you to create a thriving health practice.